experienced in these blackouts, blackouts, stretches of time we can't account for. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Captain's Log. This is your captain speaking, Jose Valle Jr., joined virtually by my trusted co-host and first officer, Mason Schrader. Mason, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Yuletide carols, spooky ghost stories, and tales of the glories of Christmas as long, long ago. How the merry hell are you doing during this most joyous time of the year, Mason? What is Yuletide? Hmm. That's a you good don't know, question. do you? I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no one does. It's not um, a thing. Yule is like a type of wood, right? Yeah, like a Yule log, right? Uh-huh. So like a... Uh, look, it's one of the most searched things up. Yuletide meaning. Let's find out together. Archaic term for Christmas. Okay. Okay. All right. No questions. I'm doing fine. <laughs> You know, I'm doing all right. Okay. I just learned something. We all, this is what's fun about this podcast, Mason, is all of us, you, me, and the listeners, get to go uh-huh. along this journey together of learning things that maybe we should have learned in fifth grade. Is that, is that sounds like it's foreboding. Um, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Like, that sounds like we're about to cover something that maybe isn't, uh-oh. Yeah, yes, actually, I would say, for a certain group. Yeah. <laughs> Is See, it white people? Because I'm so t- <laughs> Jose, I'm so fucking tired, man. It's, I'm, so- I'm sorry. We're so... Well, not all of us are sorry, but I'm so sorry. And I get it, but it's hard, and I understand no, that no, I should No, 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 don't worry. This I one- shouldn't complain. I understand that I shouldn't be, like, stop be making me feel bad about my skin color. But yeah. I'll say, fuck, no, we no, no, just got worry, through buddy. Thanksgiving, man. Do you know how much guilt, white guilt, there is in Thanksgiving? It's so much. So much. So much. No, don't worry. Don't worry. It's really not on you. It's on another group. Uh, a subset of white people uh, because today Mason oh, I, I can't think of a, a better way to celebrate the Christmas season which is you know beautiful celebration of life love and commercialism with firmly rooted ties to organized religion specifically Christianity I can't think of a better time to celebrate all that than by late taking a look at the flip side that's right over the coming weeks we're going to be diving into a multi-part series on the dangers of religion faith worship All by taking a look at one of the most dangerous cult leaders in American history, his church, and their crimes. Today, Mason, we begin our examination of the man commonly referred to as the Mormon Manson. Hey, sorry, what? What? Oh, Mormon Manson. Manson. Every time I look at Manson, I think Mason. Yeah. I don't know why. Hmm. Because I make a lot of noises and I'm short. That could be it, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So buckle up, folks, and prepare for the story of Ervil LeBaron and the Church of the Lamb of God, a Mormonism-inspired cult that sprang out of the Sierra Madre Mountains of Mexico and committed murders across multiple state lines in the U.S. and Mexico, at the command of their prophet during his lifetime and long after he was dead and buried. Have you ever heard of this story at all, Mason? Honestly, I don't think I have. Which is a little surprising to me. I want to say shout out to my dad. He's the one that first told me about this. He watched a documentary on the LeBarons. And then I think he read the book that we're going to be covering today that we're going to be using as a main source. Um, and he was like, you, you got to, he told me this years ago, but he was like, you got to look into this. And I, it's been on literally since we started the show, this has been on there. I just wanted us to get fully into this show before we cover this because it's an undertaking for sure. There is... I thought it was a simple story, but it is so much more dive like so heavy, and there's so much around it to know. So uh-huh. this is going to be a multi-part series. We're probably going to be like three or four ep- episodes devoted to this. I can't wait. Yeah, it doesn't so, sound like this is going to be taxing on my mental health one bit. <laughs> nah, probably not. Good. Our main source for this series is going to be the book The Four O'Clock Murders by Scott Anderson, who does an exceptional job of laying out the story and supplemental material surrounding the case. It's a very fascinating read, and I definitely recommend you all go check it out. Today's episode is going to serve as almost a prelude uh, to the saga of the LeBarons. Today we're going to be taking a look at the inspiration behind Ervil's crimes an examination of the early days of the Mormon church and just how exactly it played a part in this horrific tale. So today we're laying the groundwork because you have to understand what inspired him in order to understand why he did what he did. And there is a lot of inspiration in Mormonism. Any thoughts, Mason? Anything you'd like to say before we begin this strange tale? Do you think that churches do bad things a lot? <laughs> oh boy, do they, Mason. Oh. Oh boy, do they. And I'm and I will do, I will touch on that in a second. But yes. Good. Yeah. Um I would just like to say that if you are Mormon and you are listening to this, we're not saying you oh, should I've, feel I, bad. Yeah, I've got a whole section on this. But also mm. So Maybe Mason, say you're sorry. strap on your little, put on your black uh, dress pants, your white shirt, put on your little name tag that oh. says Elder Schrader, and open up your Book of Mormon, because we're about to get into some history right here. Before we begin this tale of bloodshed, I want to address some things about this case. For starters, I want to talk about the nickname often given to Ervil, the Mormon Manson. As Scott Anderson points out, both men shared many similarities, and thus the nickname is earned. Both created pseudo-religious colonies within the protection of the desert. They both fueled paranoia amongst their followers and ensured their voice was the only one heard. They both fully controlled their families, controlling where they went, slept, and who they slept with, and more importantly, who they killed. However, having researched this case... I believe that Ervil LeBaron was a much more dangerous man than Charles Manson. Manson's principal murder spree spawned two nights in Los Angeles. LeBaron's spanned two decades, thousands of miles, and two countries. Well, yeah, but he didn't kill any celebrities, did he? No, that's the thing. Well, that's that's what Manson got, is he, he killed celebrity. 
Mm-hmm. You he gotta kill the names. You want you want to be infamous. You gotta kill the famous. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You gotta kill the famous. You gotta kill the famous if the, you want to yeah. be infamous. You want to be infamous. You gotta get the famous. The Manson family was easily identifable. Dirty, smiling hippies, drugged out, and living on the fringes of society. Whereas hippies the, are pieces of shit. Hippies? Yeah, fuck them. Yeah. I some, just want to be known. Are we doing a, we doing a nope. bit here? No, oh, you, you hate no hippies. Bit. Hippies are terrible. They're trash. Wow. Okay. Okay. They meant nothing, and they stood for nothing. Wow. <laughs> Gotta get some angry emails from boomers. They don't know how to write emails. <laughs> No, hippies don't even, they're, they're fried. They're gone. Yeah. Whereas the Church of the Lamb of God, however, was well-kept, well-dressed, and well within the fold of American society. Manson's followers were his family only in name. LeBaron's were not. The majority of those who carried out his crimes were his blood, his sons, his daughters, and his wives, all doing the bidding of their patriarch and prophet for the glory of God and his kingdom. Once Charles Manson was locked up, his influence ended. He never was given the chance to kill again. Ervil still managed to order deaths long after he was buried in that Texas cemetery, and his family and their beliefs still live to this day down south in the Sierra Madre Mountains in a place called Colonia Leberon. His I'm name sorry, also looks a... like evil, too. Isn't that kind of it funny? It does. Take away the also... yard, he's evil Leberon. These people still exist? Yes. I don't think this specific subset, the Church of the Lamb of God, exists, but the this like group of that has splintered from the church and the LeBaron family, they're still down there in Mexico. Are and we we're, putting We're gonna we talk about s- the modern at the very at the very end of this series. Are we putting ourselves in some sort of danger by <sighs> Nah, probably not. Okay. Yeah, probably not. If I get if I get killed because of a script you wrote that I didn't see until tonight, I'm going to be a little upset, buddy. I'm going to be honest. Well, not by them, but maybe by some other people. We'll get into it. <laughs> awesome. The other thing uh, is much more likely to cause discomfort among some of our listeners coming out of my home state. So I would be remiss not to mention it. In his introduction, Scott Anderson brings up the point that the official Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, does not like the talk of a Mormon Manson, and often point out that Ervil was excommunicated from the church in the 1940s, long before his reign of terror began. Anderson points out that the church has argued that Mormonism should not be indicted for the actions of Ervil any more than Protestantism should be for the suicide of Jim Jones' followers. And they are, of course, right. Just to be clear, Anne Frank is a Mormon. Ervil LeBaron, not a Mormon. Let's just make that clear. That's yeah. a true fact. That is That's a, a true, true fact, fact that the I'm church, stating. If, if, if you're a Mormon and you're listening to this and you're like, what are you talking about? The church did a baptism for the dead for Anne Frank. It was a whole thing. And I'm not I'm not making a judgment call on that. Oh, I'm yeah, just that saying. Was bad. That was a bad call. I'm just saying a thing that's a fact. So they are, of course, right. Partly. And this is where I have to address this point. My home state is, of course, Utah, which is... In case you didn't know it, home to a large Mormon population. I have Mm -hmm. Mormon friends who may be listening to this episode. And as always, we encourage all of you to go do your own research and draw your own conclusions. And for our Mormon listeners, 
I would maybe suggest that you look outside the information presented by your church. You may be surprised by what you find. As many of my friends who have left the church have been, or many of my friends who are still within the church who did their own research and were like, hey, that's bad. I don't like that, you know? I would argue you'll be a little less surprised than you think. Basically, it's just every time the church said they didn't do something, they're lying. Yeah. And we're basically, gonna be, basically, allegedly, allegedly, we're going to, oh, that's right. We've got to say allegedly. So we're covered legally. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. We're just asking questions. We're going to be diving into some of the less appealing and very disturbing history that the modern church has tried to bury. Something that is, of course, not unique to Mormonism. I grew up Catholic, and we all know that the Roman Catholic Church has their share of skeletons in their little confessional booths. Little skeletons in their and little confessional booths. And underneath the robes booths. of the priests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah, all it's icky, guys. Children. Yeah. You're not alone in Mormonism. Every church is icky. We're not trying to attack the LDS church. We're just presenting historical facts. And if this upsets you... Then so be it. Sorry, come Snowflake. back for our next series. And I, I don't. I, that's, Get that's, triggered. That's, what's the word? That's passive aggressive, but it's just the truth. If you don't like this, it's fine. You don't have to listen to it. We're just presenting historical evidence. Look it up, okay? We're not specifically attacking you. We're just bringing up some of the history that the church has tried to wash away. And again, some of you are probably like, "Well, Jose, I know." I I'll know. tell you. I'll I'll tell you what. If you. Don't if you don't like this and you don't believe it happened, listen to this, but you can pretend you can be like this just just a story. Yeah, just be mad, be like, these guys don't fucking know. It's all no, right, just download no, just tell you what be like it's no, no, fiction. No, tell you what. Download the episode. That's it. That's all you have to do. That's true. You don't have to listen to it. But also if you're a fundamental Mormon uh practitioner You probably have stopped I, listening a long time ago. You shouldn't be. Yeah. yeah, it's you're already doing something wrong by just listening to us. So, you know, take another step. Read yeah, another book. I didn't have to do that, but just out of courtesy for old friends, I wanted to. Okay. Yeah, he didn't have to, so fucking thank him, assholes. Yeah, I got thank your back, you, Jose. Thank you. Is there anything yeah. you'd like to add, Mason? Um, I'm just going to play the foil to whatever you do. So when you support or when you're being nice to Mormons, I'm going to be mean to them. And when you're being mean to them, I'm going to be nice to them. Sounds about right. Yep. Okay. Now. Anderson makes a solid point in the introduction of his book, which, again, I cannot fucking stress how good this book is. It's very well written. It flows super easily. It's not boring and puts you to sleep like most true crime books. He makes the point in the introduction that separating a man from his religion is much more complicated than a church secretary writing out an excommunication letter. Listen to REM's Losing My Religion. Listen to REM in general. But also that side specifically. In the mind, (laughs) this podcast is brought to you by REM, music. In the mind of Ervil LeBaron (laughs) and those who still follow his teachings to this day, the Church of the Lamb of God was the true Mormon church because it had stayed true to the path set out by its founder and first prophet, Joseph Smith. The modern LDS church was corrupted for it had waned and, com- and compromised to the secular world, abandoning many of its important founding principles and beliefs, which just recently the LDS Church came out and said, people can, same-sex marriage is okay. Nice. People can do that. So Don't forget, that probably pisses them off a lot. That these the Mormon fundamentalists, church, I mean. 
has always been on the cutting edge when in 1970 they allowed black we're gonna people talk about to be that. in it. We're gonna, we're and gonna then talk in about that. 2022, they allowed gay people to be a Mormon. They Congrats. said, you know what? Gay people are real. Mm-hmm. We've done some uh, scientific research. Turns out they're not faking it. We've been down in the Mormon lab. <laughs> Listen, those, Turns guys, out, those people didn't get over it. It was not just a phase. Yeah. Hey, we were, well, we weren't wrong, but you're in now. It's fine. Let's move on. The original mission of the Mormon saints was to establish the kingdom of God on earth, independent and far superior to any of the secular man's institutions. However, the leaders who came after Joseph Smith failed to do this by dismantling God's laws in order to get approval from the American government. One example Ervil pointed to was polygamy. For 50 years, it had been an everlasting covenant to Mormons. But when it threatened statehood for Utah in 1890, the president of the church received a heavenly revelation that disavowed it. Another example was the explanation for people of color within the Mormon church. For more than a century, it was believed by Latter-day Saints that blacks were given their skin color as punishment for previous sins. But a reinterpretation of the gospel in 1978 eliminated that not-so-pretty belief. To Ervil LeBaron, the true Mormons were not those who had gone along with the modifications made to the church by the modern world, but rather those who had stayed true to the original tenets of faith, no matter how ugly and controversial they may be. I love that because never once ever has anybody who believed in like traditionalism been right. No. If I was a if I was a fundamentalist Roman Catholic, man. I mean, even people who think like I mean, I'm not even really a Catholic anymore, but right. Even people who say like the Constitution should be unchangeable. Yeah, it's like motherfucker. It was written in the 1800s. That's when soldiers could just walk in and be like, hey, I'm living here now. And you'd be like, oh, They had okay. muskets. They had muskets. I mean. Muskets feature in this story as well, funnily enough. Well, I'm sure they do. But I'm just, you know, I'm just saying, if you You ever fired a musket? Life, fucking sucks. If you base your entire foundation of values yeah. off of things that were written before the 1800s, you're fucking wrong. You, yeah. Yes. They weren't wrong about everything, obviously, no. but they were wrong about most things because they didn't have what we have now. Yeah, I mean, genuinely, scientifically, they didn't have the brain that we have now. Like, scientifically speaking, our brains yeah. are more developed than theirs were. We've experienced, we've seen speaking, more things than they have. We lived longer. A lot of the Jose reason- Jose and I would have been middle-aged already. We would have <laughs> been founding fathers I think, ages. Yeah. <laughs> we we could have been- yeah, like adults. You got Ben Franklin adults. and fucking Alexander Hamilton right here. Right next to, yeah, well, Ben Franklin and Alexander ha- Hamilton right next to Mason Schrader and Jose Valle Jr. Yeah. Being like, what if we put Dude. like a joke about dicks in the Constitution? <laughs> <laughs> and then Hamilton's like, no, and Franklin's like, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. John it's Hancock funny. was like, actually. Actually. I don't know if you guys <laughs> have heard this, but my last name has kind of become a little joke around around town. <laughs> See, the ugly truth is, Mason, Mormonism gave Ervil a lot of material to work with. The following is a quote directly from Scott Anderson's book in which he argues this point. This is the quote. <clears throat> if Ervil LeBaron had not been raised a Mormon, he might have still been a murderous sociopath. But he would not have been able to delude others into believing he received heavenly instruction 
if a president is a president established by Joseph Smith, he would not have been able to get those people to carry out his murder decrees without Brigham Young's doctrine of blood atonement. As much as Mormon officials in Salt Lake City might wish otherwise, their church is an integral part of this story. Okay, so, but that, I also, now I'm already mad, obviously I'm already mad, but the idea that he listened, so, Bur, so Birming, Birming, Birmingham, Brigham, Brigham, Brigham Young, Young, he was, he's okay. Where does he cut off, where does this man, Ervil, cut off uh, when it's okay, when it's no longer okay to listen to, when is it bad? He, he basically only believed in like the first two prophets. That was it. He, because, Dumb that you got the second one. Yeah, well, because it was like after that, after S- Smith, the 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 prophets that came after started uh, compromising to fit within the American government. Because uh, uh, so this is like something that we do right, learn in history af- class. That's but what I'm saying is after Smith. After yeah, after Smith, after Smith, right. it started being like they started like you know changing things. I think he probably draws the line at like yeah. I think well, it seems it seems like he draws the line after Smith. After Young, though, because after, after, after Young, Smith. sorry, but that's where, and I mean, obviously, this probably doesn't, but he's just doing like, well, I he's like the fact that this one's a crazy person, Mason. He's well, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying is the one that allows him to get away with murder, yeah. which, as Anderson said, would be something he was already probably yeah. gonna do, is obviously okay. I just think yeah. it's a little it's bit almost like this is all fucking stupid. It's almost, I'm going to say this guy, he's a little bit of a hypocrite. Yes. Just a little tiny bit. Yes. Well, we'll get into it later on, but like an example uh, is, right, if, if he's following this original decree, anybody that's a person of color would be a Lamanite or Lamanites, which is like, mm-hmm. they're the bad ones, right? But he had uh-huh. uh, Lamanite wives, uh, which I guess he would have considered them saved because they had been converted, but like some of his children were brown. So, you know, it's hypocrisy throughout this entire fucking story oh i guess so that does so and maybe we'll talk about this later but does he believe in himself or is he just power hungry and manipulative no i mean we'll get into it but he believed in himself 100 percent. okay he and we'll get into maybe some of the reasons why but this guy was he he's one of those rare cases of of cult leaders because it's like i think it's 50 50 or sometimes you get the cult leader who's like, I know this is bullshit. I just want power, right? And mm-hmm. they don't believe in the craziness they're spouting. But then you get like Manson or, um, God, what's his name? Uh, um, and I don't think Manson the- believed in it. I think he was just trying to fuck ladies in the desert. No, he definitely believed the race war was coming. I think he believed in all that Helter Skelter shit. But I like, what's know. his, um, um, oh God, what's his name? The Ant Hill Kids guy. Oh, uh, Rock, Rock something. That guy, like, or whatever the fuck, yeah, believed what he was spouting. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I I think Ervil fits into the the category of this guy was drinking his own Kool Aid, kind of, kind of shit. Yeah, it's Flavor Aid. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, it's Flavor Aid. A story that does not begin with Ervil LeBaron and his first victim in 1971. Nor does it begin with his father Alma Dyer LeBaron being excommunicated from the church and crossing into Mexico in 1924. This story begins like most good stories do, on a farm in the countryside of New York in 1823, with an angel named Moroni and a boy, a boy named Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was called a 
prophet, dum 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 dum. He started the Mormon religion, dum 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 dum. On September 23, 1823, a 17-year-old Joseph Smith was kneeling by his bedside praying, when suddenly his bedroom was overtaken by a dazzling white light, and from the light emerged a figure, barefoot and wearing a white robe. Joseph Smith would recall that the figure called him by name and said he was Moroni, a messenger sent by God, who had work for Joseph Smith to do. God wanted Smith to do something he already had experience with, look for buried treasure. Moroni told Smith that he was to look for a book, written upon golden plates, which contained the account of the former inhabitants of the American continent, and where they had come from, and that the fullness of the gospel of God lay inside as well. It had been delivered by Jesus Christ to these said inhabitants. Smith was to translate these tablets into English and spread the gospel of the Lord. Thankfully, they were only a couple of miles from his home in Palmyra, New York. So, Smith went to Camorra Hill, where he found his... <laughs> come. It's spelled, it's spelled come. Camorra Hill, where he found a stone box containing the tablets, a sword, a breastplate, and two peeping stones named Urim and Thuman, which he would use to translate the tablets. Anything you want to say <laughs> at the two seeing stones, Urim and Thuman? Well, so look, I'm not trying, I don't want to do, last podcast did a whole thing about the history of Mormonism, and I'm trying not to do their bits. Yes, that, that was the, the hard part of this this episode, was trying to not make it be So, I'm just going to, I'm Which, mostly like, just again, if you want you... An, a full, in-depth look at Mormonism yeah. itself, definitely recommend, it's a six-part series, definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, and also, and I mean, so I'm going to let you just kind of more or less breeze through this, but it's fucking stupid. Yeah. As Smith began to excavate the box, Moroni appeared and told him he had decided Smith was not quite ready to fulfill God's mission, and he must instead return in a year's time. It would be another four years before Moroni would release the tablets to Smith, and another three years from then before Smith would release the translated work under the title, The Book of Mormon. It's like That's almost enough time to write a book. Almost, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Just weird coincidences. Disappointingly, just as critics would urge Smith for evidence and to see the golden tablets, Moroni would return and whisk them away. Regardless, Mormonism would be born with Smith as its prophet, seer, and revelator. Today, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has approximately 16.5 million members and is worth roughly $100 billion. Tax the churches. Tax the churches. Tax Tax the churches. Tax, tax the churches. They tax either them. give their money to charity or we tax the churches. Tax I'm em. sorry, but that's where it should no, be. It's no apologizing. Ridiculous. I'm going to run unapologizing for Jose. Don't apologize. Fuck them. Tax those churches. Again, I grew mm-hmm. up incredibly devoted to my church, and I was always like, yeah, it makes sense. Churches aren't taxed. And then I grew up, and I saw the world, and I was like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Even if you, you can be completely devoted to your religion and still also believe that we need to tax churches. We need to tax them. I'm, yeah. Tax them. I'm not sorry. Tax them. Nice. Especially the fucking Catholic Church. Those fuckers have money from Rome times. That's insane. Anyway. <laughs> However. God, they've got money from Rome times. That's, Do you know how fucking crazy that is? Yeah. 
Never, I mean, I had never thought about it. That is fucking yes. crazy. They've probably still got like galleons or whatever the fuck they used in Roman times. Same with I the fucking royals. Spain. Same with the royals. The royals? They, the royals have money from fucking before they had what? toilets. What royals? The what? Windsors, the royals of England. Oh, I don't. There's like so many countries with royal families. They're don't the, act they're like. They're the only ones that matter, Mason. God. I'm. Also, their name is Windsor? That's their family name, Windsor, yeah. What? Yeah. Elizabeth Windsor was the name yes. of... I'm just learning that I, right I, now. I learned it like a couple days ago. Wow. Wow. Isn't it something, what we do Why on this podcast? Why did I never know their last names before? Well, because it's never mattered. They never use it. I want to fucking kill a monarch <laughs> now so bad. I'm so can't angry all of a sudden. I can't wait for the monarchs. revolution, man. Jesus, I'm telling you, I'm I'm going after Charles. Cutting his fat churches, fingers off. Churches and 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 royalties and oligarchs. I, they, I'm just so mad right now. Been watching a lot of Game of Thrones though, so I'm kind of so I'm 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 full on the hate the kings, hate uh you know royal families train. Yeah. Fuck them. Fuck them all. Mm-hmm. However, it was not smooth sailing for Smith at the beginning. See, the revelation that God had chosen him as his prophet came as a bit of a surprise to his neighbors. Ever since arriving from Vermont, everyone had considered Smith a scoundrel. Charismatic, sure, but a scoundrel, who had a knack for weaving fantastical stories. During any would, you other... co- would you consider me a charismatic scoundrel? Yes, I would. I would. Thank you. I would consider you a little charismatic scoundrel, yeah. Thanks. You're welcome. During any other time period... Smith would perhaps just have been another storyteller whose religion would have faded into obscurity. But this time period was special. You see, Palmyra, New York, was at the heart of what came to be known as the Burned Over Land, a region that had been consumed by mass religious revivalism that had bordered on mass hysteria. It was not uncommon to see folks writhing on the ground due to demonic possession, traveling messiahs and bizarre cults led by men who received visions, from God. Joseph's own father, Joseph Smith Sr., also had visions. Six heavenly visions had befallen him in his lifetime, and interestingly enough, they all had centered on buried treasure, always at the suggestion of an angel. Joseph's mother Joseph's mother traveled from revival group to revival group, all in search of redemption. It seems it was this mysticism within his home that piqued young Smith's interest in religion and salvation. And according to some biographers, he may have even suffered a mental breakdown between the ages of 12 to 15 because of this interest. It was said Fucking that the, the young boy was, like, obsessed with his salvation. Millennials. Fucking millennials, dude, with their you know, fucking... Ugh. These, Maybe if they didn't drink Starbucks every day. Kids these days having their breakdowns about salvation, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, the planet is dying. Oh, I can't Everybody. breathe the air. Shut up. Everybody's mentally ill now. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. When I was a kid, you would just cry yourself to sleep every night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shove your emotion deep down and take it out on your wife. Yeah. Those were the days when men were men. Mm-hmm. Western New York had also become the home to many interesting schools of thoughts or myths, one might call them. They were myths. They were just myths. One such prevailing myth at the time was that the ten lost tribes of Israel had crossed the Atlantic and settled in America. People who followed this myth believed the native peoples were these lost tribes. Hmm? 
Interesting. Hmm. Another prevailing myth involved digging for treasure. According to some, there was treasure buried all throughout the countryside. One could find this treasure with the use of peeping stones. Special rocks imbued with magic one would look through to find the treasure. Something that modern that the modern Mormon church tries to hide is that one of the most prevalent users of seeing stones was Joseph Smith. It's like a magic rock. So basically, yeah. I wish he would have been played by Gilbert Gottfried. Rest in peace. Mm. What you do is you put your eyes through them and then you see everything. That was a little doofenshmirtzy, but I'm still into it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was good, though. The same year uh, that he claimed to have been visited by the angel Moroni, Smith would begin to offer his services to landowners, promising to find riches on their land. Many folks... God, how much fun would it be if it just be like, now that I'm thinking uh, hi, about hello, it? sir, would you like us to find buried treasure in your yard? Oh, sure. I know you don't think... Oh, whoop. And then like you, the other guy throws a coin down, and he's like, Ooh. oh, there's a coin down there, and he's like, oh, what the fuck? I see a coin. For the audio listeners, Mason is doing that trick where you flip your hands upside down and make glasses. <laughs> mm, it's really good. It's really good. Coins. Um, now that I think about it, I think I'd rather have Joseph Smith played by Charlie Day. He just be Do you know like how much gold panic- is? Yeah, just panicky. All. He's got the Pepe There's so Silvia, much gold. The Pepe yeah. Silva. The- so many folks believe the young man, but they never saw any results. Smith would explain this by saying that the demons guarding the treasure had been cunning and destroyed it or moved it before he could get to it. Yeah, so uh, I found the treasure, but, you know. Okay, okay. The problem is, well, so the problem is Uh these buried treasures, you know, they got demons that hide them, uh, protect them. As you, I mean, it's pretty common knowledge. I mean, most people, you know, any, you go to any library, do some reading, check it out. I've been literate, but continue. Uh huh. So they'll uh, they'll see me coming, and this and your particular treasure, so much treasure, by the way, more treasure than I've ever seen. You're definitely the richest man in within oh, that's great. maybe even the country. Okay. But the demon now, because you are so rich, the demon okay. is more powerful. Oh. And he did move the hoard of treasure before I was able to secure it. Oh. So. Do I, That's going to be get like the $30 extra for a, the demon moving charge. I I still have to pay you even though you didn't find the treasure? Well, I found it. I did find it, though. Hmm. And then a demon moved it. But, but I don't have the treasure. Yeah, well, you do, though, because you have the land, and it's in the land, so... Honestly, richest man in town. Honestly, I mean, you should... The fact that you are even blinking an eye at the meager amount that I'm charging for this is... It's its almost silly you have so much money. Wow. Well, here, thank you so much. Again, I really yeah, thank appreciate you. it. Hey, wow. look. Joseph no, Smith. No problem, pal. You're a real man of the people. You know that? <laughs> I am. Uh, don't forget... Uh, Oh, I'm the only one who can see the treasure. Anybody else that comes by is a con man. Uh, for right. a second there, I thought you were going to say, don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> he would be vlogging it if yeah. he was today's, yeah. Oh, he would 100% be an influencer. This would lead him, uh, this would land him in trouble with the law. In 1826, he was hauled into court and found guilty of being a disorderly person and an imposter. 
A year later, he would leave his black magic practices behind and remember his mission from God. But it seems this may have been by necessity rather than divine prompting. You see, Smith had been seeing a 21-year-old from Pennsylvania named Emma Hale, whose father, Isaac, forbade her to marry Smith because of Smith's profession and reputation. The young He's couple, a flimflam man, Emma. You can't a marry liar, him. Dude. <laughs> but Daddy, uh, I be, love uh, him. To be fair, uh, sir, actually, it's not my fault. You just didn't have any buried treasure on your uh, on your uh, land, so I had to kick your ass, boy. Well, you'd be kicking the ass of a man who God talks to. God talks to you. Mm, every day. What does he say? He says that uh, that I should pork your daughter. Say that one more time. Uh, he said that I should pork your daughter. Well, if it's come from God, it's, I mean, it has to happen then. All right. Mm. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, carry on. Mm. I appreciate it. So he Thanks, from- Dad. <laughs> hmm, pushing <laughs> it. Pushing it. Pushing <laughs> it. God said to call you Dad. <laughs> you know he was using that all the time. I would. I want to start doing it now. Just like, like actually, God told me. She like his wives would argue with him and be like, "Hey, man, God said I don't have to wash the dishes." Do you know how much of a mind fuck it's gonna be now? Just if someone is like, "Don't do that," and I'm like, "God told me to," and then they're just like, "That's like scary." That's like, yeah. "Don't talk to him anymore." We just move away. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> the young couple just simply eloped. But in 1827, in order to collect Emma's inheritance, Smith struck up a deal with his father-in-law. He would give up treasure hunting and move to Pennsylvania where Hale would help his son-in-law set up his own farm and become a reputable man. Fine, I'll be a farmer and not a treasure hunter. Dad. (laughs) Oh, I fucking hate it here. Oh, your dad sucks, Emma. I just want to find treasure. Oh, they don't understand how much of a fucking artist I am. They don't get it. Dude. It's hard work. Do you know how many times demons move the gold before I'm able to get it? I know, sweetie. I know. <laughs> no, I know. I, I know. know. Daddy just wants you to be, you know, consistent. <sighs> Fine. Who's my special man that God talks to? Me. <sighs> Who's my special man that God talks to? Me. Stop. You? Oh and God. is he going to still talk to you when we live on a farm? Probably. I don't know. Well, do you, well, what do you think? Aren't you his favorite? <sighs> yes, I am. All right. Mwah. All right. I'm going to go do anything other than hang out with you because I hate <laughs> you. Bye. However, soon after, uh, s- soon after this deal had been made, Smith remembered his holy mission. And Moroni finally <laughs> let him retrieve the tablets. Yeah, so uh, you know how I said I have to be a farmer? Listen, real quick about that. I just fucking remembered... Yeah. God actually told me to, like, start a church. So you kind of got to do that first. Is that cool? I hate, Can I we hate still you, get the money, though? Joseph Smith, I hate you so much. The tablets, they were written in Reformed Egyptian. Reformed <laughs> Egyptian, anyway. Which Smith was able to decode by using the seeing stones. Mm. The tablets told us. like the, those comic books. Get X-ray vision. The secret codes. And yeah. yeah, that's great. The tablets told the story of Lehi, an Israelite patriarch who had led his tribe out of Jerusalem in 600 BC and come to the New World. His two sons, Nephi and Laman, fought for leadership of the tribe upon his death. 
This would eventually end with a good and just Nephi being murdered by Laman. The tribe would split into two groups, the good, blessed Nephites and the evil, violent Lamanites. They would battle one another for a thousand years. And in 400 AD, the last of the Nephites would be wiped out near Palmyra, New York, after an epic battle. God punished the Lamanites by giving them, and here's our first little bit of racism, red skin, thus turning them into the Native Americans. I Just, love that instead of God intervening to keep his the yeah. righteous and true followers alive, he just waited for them to die and then punished them. I, I like to think it was like a clash of clans thing where he couldn't stop it once it started, and he was like, fuck, oh, I did yeah. not deploy enough troops. Yeah. Oh, man, Fair I should enough. have put more giants down there. Mm. The uh, <laughs> uh, Joseph Smith's holy mission was to convert the Lamanites, upon which their skin would revert to its natural and holy white color, Yay. That's the whole reason I'm doing this podcast with you, <laughs> is just to turn you into a white man. It is, you say that, but I had so many Mormon friends who were like, dude, my parents really want me to convert you. And I was like... <laughs> Can you imagine? What? Smith expected the Book of Mormon to be gladly accepted as the word of God. That's what I expected of this podcast. But instead, <laughs> <laughs> but instead it was met with ridicule and criticism. One key complaint among the critics was that the only evidence for the fantastical tale was the golden tablets, which had conveniently been whisked away by Moroni. Another common criticism was that the book didn't seem very original at all. Large sections of the book seemed to have been lifted straight from the New Testament, with only names changed and phrases seemingly Americanized. Hey, fuck you, okay? Writing is hard. Writing is hard, guys. It's, it's so hard. hard to have an original idea. Dude, so, you don't do you know understand. How many, do you know how many fucking scripts I've written and then I get done with it and I'm like, oh, this is just Reservoir Dogs. Oh, fuck. Yeah. It's fucking hard to write things. Oh, okay? I just wrote fuck Us off. again. <laughs> oh, this is the movie Get Out. Fuck. It's fucking or when hard. I'm, or okay. when I'm pitching a script to someone and they're like, Oh, it's sure like this movie? Yeah. Oh, you mean like like uh like Top Gun and I'm like Ah, fuck, yeah. No, cuz they cuz they have boats. No, cuz it's They like, have boats. It's yeah, called but Top it's, Boat. And they mm. have it's about the best boat captains. Fuck. Who would you cast? Well, Tom Cruise. And I told you not to fucking bring up my Top Boat script ever again, you piece of shit. <laughs> The books of Isaiah and Revelations appear to have been copied verbatim. Mark Twain criticized the book as being merely a prosy detail of imaginary history with the Old Testament for a model, followed by a tedious plagiarism of the New Testament. Fucking got him, Mark Twain. Yeah, get fucked. Burned. His new church failed to take off right away. By 1830, he only had fewer than 50 followers and had been dragged into court time and time again on the basis of disorderly conduct. He was being financially supported by his disciples, but regardless, Smith doubled down and slowly began to win over more folks, who seemed to like the egalitarian aspect of his church, which is one of the things that's most appealing about the Mormon church is they have a living prophet. They have a direct line to God. They don't have to depend on some man to interpret the word or you know like like in the mormon church we or the catholic church we have the pope who's like interpreting the word of god mormons are like nah man we know exactly what god's saying 
This guy, he's got a straight line to him. Pulls up the red bat phone, and he calls up God. And yeah, that's that what's so appealing to it because, as I think, if, if you're, but if you're someone looking for explanation, it yeah, probably is fair. more comforting to know that like you're getting directly from God. You're getting the word directly. So. In 1831, Smith announced that God had selected Western Missouri to be the site of a new Jerusalem, which is when people should have known he was lying. God would never choose Western Missouri to be the, anything except trash. I mean, he clearly chose Western Missouri for something, and it was trash. It was trash. Well, nah, uh, I'm, just, I'm just messing around. It's no Nebraska, so they're better for that reason. Smith's disciples began to flood into Missouri and buy as much land as they could clearing farms, and establishing church outposts. The Mormons were met with resistance from non-Mormon or Gentile Missourians, who in 1833 ransacked church settlements and drove the saints from their land. In response, Smith formed the Danites, a vigilante army to defend Mormon com communities and launch retaliatory raids against the Gentiles. Smith would also use them to root out enemies and rivals within the faith. The Danites would prove to be a double-edged sword. While they brought pride to the Latter-day Saints, they also fed into the anti-Mormon propaganda that was being spread. Stories circulated of Danites committing atrocities and their secret plan to kill all the Gentiles. By 1838, the governor of Missouri was convinced that Mormons were dangerous and issued an order to his militia. The Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary. For the public good, their outrages are beyond description. But I will now describe them. Yeah, I was just going <laughs> After 17 Mormon men and boys were murdered by the militia, the saints gave in and were escorted out of the state. They would find a safe haven in Illinois, however, on a high bluff overlooking the Mississippi River, an area Smith would name... Nauvoo, which he claimed was Hebrew for beautiful plantation. Nauvoo was given near total autonomy by the state government, and the Book of Mormon seemingly struck a chord with Europeans who flocked to the Mormon oasis. By 1844, it had been, it had the second largest population in Illinois just behind Chicago. However, something happened with Smith, something that we'll see time and time again throughout this series. Despite the success of his church, or maybe because of the success of his church, his behavior became more and more autocratic. He turned Nauvoo into a virtual fiefdom, one with a very militaristic flair. The Nauvoo Legion, a fully armed church militia, had weekly parades with Smith leading them atop a white stallion wearing a blue uniform adorned with gold epaulets. He also had given himself a new title to follow Prophet seer and revelator lieutenant general lieutenant general prophet seer revelator to you <laughs> oh okay so is that going to be a venti or a grande sir venti okay one venti for wait no yes venti as the community continued to prosper smith received revelation from god that a hotel should be built that would be owned and operated by his servant, Joseph Smith. In no time at all, the financial ventures of the town lay in the hands of Joseph Smith and his closest aides. 
Despite one of the most remembered phrases from the Bible being, it is easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In Nauvoo, this was not the case. A saint's wealth was seen as a reflection of his godliness. Thus, the richer you are, the more saint-like you are. Something that, based on my own personal experience with Latter-day Saints, I would, st- would say still continues to be in their mindset. But Smith was not just hungry for money. He was also hungry for women. See, in 1841, after 26-year-old Louisa Beamon caught his eye, Smith had another little revelation from God. It was time to reintroduce the ancient practice of polygamy among his people. This new commandment, however, was a bit confusing. See, God had already given his two cents on polygamy, Mason, being very against it in the Book of Mormon, saying, There shall be not any man among you, have save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. For I, the Lord God, delight in the chastity of women. And once again, in an 1831 revelation to Smith, saying, Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shalt cleave unto her and none else. To be fair, though, when this revelation happened, God did say, unless she's being a giant bitch. Yeah, and then and then he said, and the other one is hot. Yes. Yeah, so. Knowing that the polygamy revelation would cause stir and perhaps doubt, he didn't make it public and instead spread it among the higher leadership of the church. The more wives a man had, the higher his sanctity. So Smith began to take on wives at a quick rate. The way it worked was, a saint who had received the higher calling would approach a woman who didn't necessarily need to be single, and announce that they had a revelation from God that the woman should be sealed to them. The woman would get an automatic ticket into heaven by being sealed to one of the chosen saints. Joseph Smith sealed himself to at least 43 women. With Please ages, stop calling it that. That's what they call it. I don't care. Stop calling it that. It's he gross. He sealed himself to at least 43 women with ages ranging from 15 to 59. <laughs> the old one was just as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I would never fuck her. And then he's like looking at her and he's like, well. Ervil LeBaron would seal himself to 13 women, ranging in age from 16 to 43. By 1844, the saints had found out about Smith's revelation, and many began to question his credibility, something Smith could not allow. Enforced by his militia, dissent against his authority was not permitted. He also had church leaders add another title to the list. He was crowned king in the kingdom of God. I'm king in the kingdom of God. This is, again, one other thing that the Mormon church tries to not ever bring up, that he crowned himself king. I am the king, and it is good to be king, hotel owner, lieutenant general, revelator, seer, Prophet Smith. Prophet DJ Smith. That's right, guys. I have a we're morning go, talk go, show. <laughs> oh, we were doing, we were different we're two DJs. Two different DJs. He began to have visions of a great war in the West and his role in it as the savior of America. He petitioned Congress to be made an army officer so that he could raise an army of 100,000 men who would be used to liberate Texas, protect Oregon, and expand the western and southern borders. In their time off, the army would search for ancient treasures. 
Congress, of course, refused. Smith didn't care. He had his eyes set on a bigger prize, the presidency of the United States. Running in 1844, the prophet promised to restructure the American political system and create a theo-democracy. This plunge into politics only fueled the flames of discontent among his followers, something Smith didn't seem to care about. After all, within the boundaries of Nauvoo, he held more power, political, economic, spiritual, than any other individual in American history. The official belief of the church is that Smith was martyred for his beliefs. The reality is much different. A group of church dissenters who had become alarmed by Smith's growing megalomania and his practice of polygamy expressed their discontent in a broadsheet called The Expositor. In response, Smith sent his legions to their offices and had them destroy their presses. Never a good move when your leader is like, no, you don't get to have uh, free speech anymore. No, it's, that's a great thing. That's what you want from a leader. Is the enemy of the people or the press. Yeah. Sorry. The enemy, the greatest enemy to the people is the press. This was all the Gentiles in the area needed to finally go after the prophet and his growing power. Militia and vigilante mobs formed and marched on Nauvoo. An arrest warrant was issued for Smith and other church leaderships, leadership for instigating a riot. The Mormons in Nauvoo prepared for an all-out war and Smith addressed his followers. Unsheathing his sword and raising it to the sky, he cried out, I call God and angels to witness that I have unsheathed my sword with a firm and unalterable determination that this people shall have their legal rights and be protected from mob violence, or my blood shall be spilt on the ground like water, and my body consigned to the silent tomb. But it seemed Smith had second thoughts. Five days after his speech, he and his brother Hiram climbed into a boat in the middle of the night and paddled across the Mississippi with plans to escape west. It took the pleas of Emma and other church leadership for the brothers to return. They convinced the brothers that a holocaust would befall the Mormons if Smith did not simply turn himself in, which they were probably right. The next day, the Smith brothers and others named in the warrant rode to Carthage and turned themselves in. Around 5.30 on the evening of June 27th, hundreds of militiamen stormed the building with the intention of lynching the prophet and his brother. The prophet did not resign to death and instead grabbed a six-shooter that was smuggled in for him. He fired at the attackers and injured three. Hiram was hit in the face with a musket ball and fell backward proclaiming, I am a dead man! I am a dead man. I would have said, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, fuck my face. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I like that fuck my face. I like that people in the 1800s were like, even in death, were still like, and may God rest my soul. I would have been like, oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Am I going to die? <laughs> Joseph Smith. <laughs> I am a dead man. Fuck! <laughs> oh fuck! <laughs> that's what my and last words are gonna he, be. And you know that's what he said too, right? Yeah. Like this has got to be yeah. some sort of like uh, Mormon history, propaganda yeah. that he didn't be like fuck out. <laughs> he was like, oh shit! I am a dead man. <laughs> Joseph Smith leapt to a window and prepared to jump when he was shot in the back. He held on to the sill for a moment and cried out. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. My God. 
<laughs> Which, that's better. That's something yeah. that I expect would expect you to and yell. And fell to the courtyard where his enemies waited. There he was met with a volley of bullets, and thus the Lord's prophet, seer, revelator, lieutenant general, and king had died. <coughs> Lord prophets, seer, revelator, lieutenant king, or lieutenant general, king, hotel owner, and DJ. DJ. Smith's murder left a power vacuum and many scrambled to fill it. Among one of those people was skilled orator, high-ranking saint, and piece of absolute shit, Brigham Young. After hearing the... He's like, he's Jabba oh, uh, to me. Uh, oh, okay, that's fine. Han Solo. It's often life's small moments that bring the greatest memories. Don't let their magic pass you by. Don't let the magic pass you by. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. After hearing of Smith's murder, Young left the East where he had been electioneering and strapped on two six-shooters and proceeded to take over the church. As Anderson put it, Joseph Smith was the creator of the Mormon Church, but Brigham Young would ensure its survival. Young, if you need to win them, you need Brigham. <laughs> That's pretty good. I should, I you pretty should, good you should sell that to the Mormon church. Hello, <laughs> I'm Brigham Young. That's just, yeah. yeah. It's just kind of Nixon-y, but it's like very a little Nixon-y, more gruff. Yeah. Yeah. Young argued that the leadership of the church did not die with Smith, nor did it pass on to his son as many had expected, but was instead transferred to the collective leadership of Smith's Twelve Apostles, the Quorum of Twelve, who had been appointed by the finger of God and supreme authority rested with the president of the quorum, who happened to be Brigham Young. This was not taken lying down, however, and there were many others who tried for the mantle. Young handled each and every one in a manner of different ways. Some were tried and accused of heresy. Others were horsewhipped, threatened with economic ruin, or run out by Brigham supporters. Some rumors floated around that some were greased and swallowed, which involved tying a rope to a person's neck and the other end to a rock and throwing the rock in the Mississippi. I ate them. I ate all of my enemies. I am not a cannibal. Brigham Young was smart and cunning. As attacks both literally and through the press continued on the Mormons from the Gentile people, he realized the saints would have to move. And he set his eyes on the Great Salt Lake Basin in the barely explored regions of the western Rocky Mountains. This would be the place where Young would erect the kingdom of God, there, in isolation, the Mormon people could be free. And, as most cult leaders know, in isolation, people will listen to the loudest voice without question. In yes, who's here? <laughs> in February of 1846, the Mormon pioneers set out across land in covered wagons in what would be one of the biggest treks in American history. Many would die along the, along the journey from disease, starvation, or exposure. But 17 months later, in July 1847, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would reach their destination. Young would come to call the area Deseret, which was the name for the honeybee in the Book of Mormon, as he envisioned a thriving hive of Latter-day Saints working together towards building their new kingdom. And the honeybee, uh, the, the hive, is still the uh, official uh, symbol on the Utah flag. The kingdom of God began to spring up quickly, 
as Salt Lake City turned from a collection of shacks to a permanent town. Thus, the church released the Kingdom of God, in which they laid out this new Zion clearly, something Ervil O'Baron would be inspired by heavily. One passage reads, The Kingdom of God is an order of government, established by divine authority. It is the only legal government that can exist in any part of the universe. All other governments are illegal and unauthorized. God, having made all beings and worlds, has a supreme right to govern by his own laws and by officers of his appointment. Any people attempting to govern themselves by their laws of their own making and by officers of their own appointment are in direct rebellion against the kingdom of God. It is necessary that every citizen should cultivate such a character and disposition as shall be most pleasing to their king. Whenever the king shall give advice or counsel upon any subject, they should, without hesitation, adhere strictly to that advice or counsel. Many had grown confused and were unsure of the king being described in the kingdom of God was God himself or Brigham Young. After all, in Utah, he was no longer another man chasing the title of the new Joseph Smith. He was the official second prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. After the Mexican-American War, Deseret was now officially American soil, and the territory of Utah was created, with Brigham Young as its governor. For the next 30 years, Smith would blur the line. This is post-separation post of church and state, correct? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes. So, like, you'd think that, like, maybe making the government... Well... Yeah. For the next 30... I suppose we're past pointing out things like that, aren't we? Yes. For the next 30 years, Young would blur the line between the separation of church and state, creating what oh. was... This, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Creating what was essentially a thinly veiled, monolithic theocracy. The elected legislature became the enforcers of Young and the church's wishes. A saint was rarely held accountable for his crimes committed against Gentiles, while Gentiles were severely punished for crimes committed against saints. Federal soldiers lived in camps and hardly ever ventured among the Utah saints who despised them. Presidential appointees were ignored or ran out of the territory. By 1852, Smith openly advocated for the practice of polygamy among all the saints. He had, by this point, already sealed himself to 20 women, the youngest of which was reported to have been 15. This number would be much larger by the end of his life. This public uh, endorsement. Number of women? Or number the... of women, yeah. Oh, okay. I think it was like 40 or 50. This public cool. endorsement would not go over well with the American government. As Don't trust. Get in my Gaelic word. Frog bitches get money. He is getting too Nixon y. Yeah, he is. So much fun. But Young didn't have time to worry about that. He was enjoying a lot of financial success. As trustee of the church, he had control of the saints' tithings and was also head of the territorial government, both giving him the opportunity to benefit economically, which he did. He took possession of most of the timberland surrounding the basin and obtained exclusive grazing rights for his cattle on its finest prairie. He was also director of the Great Salt Lake Waterworks Association, which meant he controlled the very lifeblood of the community. I've just finished up playing a game of Monopoly. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Next, My I'm going for the electric company. <laughs> buying all the utilities. Joseph had the hotels. I'm the railroad and utility man. <laughs> that's, that's a very smart way to play. It is. 
All the commercial links to the outside world, railroad, telegraph, mail transport companies, were all owned by Young. A chain of retail stores called Zion's Cooperative Mercantile Institution opened up in 1868. Saints were encouraged to shop at C Z C M I. It just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. The president of ZCMI was Brigham Young. Who? <gasps> You're joking. Wow, mm. this guy got really lucky. Yeah, isn't that nice strike of Crazy. Luck. Well, divine intervention, Mason. Oh, well, that's right. He's God's chosen. <clears throat> In 1850, Young introduced a new tenant, one that would be used by Ervil LeBaron to justify his murder spree, and one that the modern church likes to pretend never existed. It Blood also was one atonement. that justified several offshoots and, and cults oh, of Mormonism yeah. to murder people. Yeah. By the mid-1850s, Young sensed a lack of discipline among his saints, perhaps brought on by the influence of Gentiles who had also flocked to the area. So, in 1856, Brigham Young announced that a church purification campaign that came to be known as the Mormon Reformation would begin. At the center of it was the practice of blood atonement. He sent a survey of sorts to each household containing 26 questions, the most sinister of which was one that asked if the saint had ever spoken against the principles of Mormonism, the revelations of the prophet, or the presidency of the church. In theory, the sinner would repent, be rebaptized, and be on the right side of God once more. But this was not the case. The Reformation quickly became an inquisition. Nobody expects the Mormon Inquisition. Nobody expects the Mormon Inquisition. One of my favorite Monty Python bits. It's, it's very good, yes. This campaign not only provided the opportunity to settle old scores and blackmail people, but it also legitimized the elimination of enemies from the playing board. Every once in a while, the LDS Church will discuss the Reformation, but they describe the violence that came with it as being the work of a handful of individuals in isolated incidents to which the young administration was none the wiser. And when they did learn of these events, they quickly condemned them. Unfortunately for church officials, history has receipts. On a September day in 1856, Young's words were recorded in the official church chronicle, Journal of Discourses. There are sins that men commit for which they cannot receive forgiveness in this world or in that which is to come. And if they had their eyes open to see their true condition, they would be perfectly willing to have their blood spilt upon the ground that the smoke therefore might ascend to heaven as an offering for their sins. I know when you hear my brethren telling about cutting up people off from the earth, that you consider it a strong doctrine. But it is to save them, not destroy them. I know that there are transgressors who, if they knew themselves, that this is the only condition upon which they can obtain forgiveness, would beg of their brethren to shed their blood. Essentially, Young was, saying, was stating that a sinner could be saved once again by simply having his life taken by a more righteous man. But Young wasn't done. A few months later, in February of 1857, he added on to this, saying, All mankind love themselves, and let the blood atonement principles be known by an individual. And he would be glad to have his blood shed. That would be loving themselves, 
even unto internal exaltion. Will you love your brothers and sisters likewise when they have committed a sin that cannot be atoned for without the shedding of their blood? Will you love that man or woman enough to shed their blood? This is loving our neighbor as ourselves. If he needs help, help him. If he wants salvation and, is necessary, and it is necessary to spill his blood on the earth in order that he may be saved, spill it. That is the way to love mankind. Now, <laughs> now Mason did a fun thing. <laughs> now, <laughs> oh, fuck, the mic's on. <laughs> now, Mason did a funny voice throughout that, but if you actually listen to what he said, it's fucking horrifying. Because yeah, it was he's, pretty fucked up. He's basically urging people, you know, to kill. And he's saying, and it's, it's okay if you kill. You're doing people a service. They want you to kill them. God wants you to kill them. If they knew how shitty and terrible their sins were, they'd beg you to kill them. And that is some fucking medieval fucking shit I've ever heard. Yeah. And so in the late 1850s, this act of love was performed enthusiastically throughout Utah. To carry out his new mission, Young resurrected the Danites, the secret Mormon army that had first been used in Missouri by Joseph Smith. Over time, the Danite pool kept expanding. Some were blood atoned for failing to pay tithing, others for doubting the authority of Young, and others for disagreeing with the practice of blood atonement itself. In September of 1857, the greatest atrocity of them all was committed. One hundred and twenty pioneers from Arkansas who were traveling to California were slaughtered at Mountain Meadows in southern Utah. While originally the Native American tribes were blamed for this massacre, it was eventually discovered to have been carried out with the active participation of local Danites. And this is like something that we're taught in Utah history, and again, they kind of gloss over the involvement of the Danite people of the Danites and the Mormon people <clears throat> and say that it was just pe like people who were scared. Obviously, they were scared, they were paranoid, but this was because of these doctrines that had been set forth. 120 people were killed who were just trying to go to a better life. And one of the most fucked up things is they kept the children of the people they murdered uh, and tried to raise them as their own. And then eventually when the government found out about all of this, uh, the people who were, pun were punished and those children were sent to like orphanages pretty much. Um, but it's insane. It it's was a whoopsie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, guys. Which our church bad. hasn't accidentally killed a bunch of people? Look, it was our bad, okay? Whoopsie. Whoops. By 1857, the American government had had enough of Brigham Young and his kingdom of God. Stories, often exaggerated, of Danite atrocities made their way to D.C. This, coupled with Young's open endorsement of polygamy, were enough for President Buchanan to dismiss Young as governor of Utah and dispatch federal troops to the state. The church began to lose influence as more Gentiles moved to the area, and the final blow came in 1869, when the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, and Utah was no longer isolated from the rest of the country. Young died of cholera in 1877, but his legacy lived on, a legacy of expansion, conquest, wealth, and industrialization, but also violence, bigotry, and murder a legacy that Ervil Baron would be greatly obsessed with throughout his upbringing. Young would also provide Ervil with a theological weapon that would help him justify and enforce his killings, blood atonement. And this is um, 
uh, a quote from Brigham Young. I could refer you to plenty instances where men have been righteously slain in order to atone for their sins. The wickedness and ignorance of the nations forebodes this principle being in full force. You get a lot of spit yeah. in this in your mouth when you do this voice. Uh, but the time will come when the law of God will be in full force. The beginning of the LeBaron saga of death began very similarly to that of Mormonism. It, too, featured a divine visitation, but not of an angel dressed in white, but an old man sitting on a throne of gold. It would be almost a hundred years to the day after Joseph Smith's vision, and it would happen to the patriarch of the LeBaron household, Alma Dyer LeBaron. And with that visitation is where we will pick up for the second part of Irvil LeBaron and the Church of the Lamb of God. Any thoughts, Mason, as we wrap this episode up? Uh-oh. It only goes, gets worse from here, folks. And that was pretty fucked up. And, yeah. And again, it's just history. Facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to quote our patron saint, <laughs> Benjamin Shapiro. Well, that was Shapiro. a joke. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys for listening to this. It's time to wrap the show up, Mason. If you like the show, make sure to leave a five-star review, which you can do in-app on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify. We'd really appreciate it if you leave us a review. Plus, it really helps the show, and we'll read your review on the show. You can support the show by going to patreon.com backslash captainslogcast and donate a dollar. Anything helps keep the lights on. Another thing you could do to help the show and yourself is go over to Tee Public and shop our merch. Click the link in our show notes and grab yourself anything with our new design on it. Remember, if you donate slash support us, it all goes towards improving the show, getting better recording equipment, etc. Mason, where can the fine listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Mason uh, Schrader. I, why am I <laughs> just your own now questioning name? that? No, I don't know if... Pretty sure that's it, unless you've changed it. But I mean, if they look up your name, it still comes up. You right? can find me on Instagram at Mason Schrader. I uh, I post a lot of my art there, my personal art and my fun stuff, and I enjoy it. And you could, I'd love it if you follow me and tell me I'm good at things because I God, would love I'm it insecure. if you follow him. Yes, thank you, Jose. Yeah. If you're just Jose's friends, follow me on Instagram. Yeah, I don't know why you're not. Yeah. Well, you can or on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter too, but I don't really use it. Well, look, Twitter's a. Uh... Twitter's become something else. Let me just say that. Well, yeah, that's true. It, I hate going on it now. Anyway, well, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at j.valle underscore junior and the show on Twitter and Instagram at Captain's Log Pod. We recommend various different materials on there, post show updates, and post some occasionally phony things. So go check it out. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can find me as Jose Valle Jr., Animal Productions, and of course, the show's official YouTube channel, Captain's Log. If you can't get enough of me, you can also listen to my other podcast with friend of the log, Mr. Max Benyon, called Max and Jose Have Something to Say. Uh, make sure to tell your friends and family and your enemies, your nemesises, mm -hmm. uh, strangers on the street, just yes. tell people about the show. If you enjoy it, and even if you hate it, tell people about <laughs> it. Uh, if you'd like to share your opinion on this case, or you have some insights to share, please do so by writing to captainslogcast at gmail.com. You can also suggest episode topics, guests you'd like to have back, etc. 
make sure to subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, and any other podcast directory. Thanks to Mr. Carlos Rivera for composing our show's theme. With that, everybody, we have reached the end of our show. We'll see you soon for another episode. I've been your captain, Jose Valle Jr., joined by... First mate and first officer and 45th prophet of our Lord and God Savior, Mason Schrader. And this has been Captain's Log. Brought to you God's, by the, La- the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. God said, subscribe and like. End of transmission. Beep, boop, boop. Don't kill anybody. Do you think the Mormon church is going to come after us? I'd like to see him try. Oh, <laughs>